The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, I have a very special guest. His name is Professor Burton Malkiel, and when I say I have a special guest, man, I am not kidding this week. Uh, Professor Malkiel is perhaps best known for writing one of the most seminal books on investing, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. It's now in its 11th edition, having sold more than a million and a half copies. Uh, professor of economics at Princeton, twice chairman of the department there. He ran the Yale School of Management uh, for about eight years. And over the course of that period, he was for 28 years on the board uh, of Vanguard. He is currently the chief investment officer of Wealthfront. Friends with other guests of the show, like Jack Bogle and Charlie Ellis, uh, really. Professor Malkiel is unique um, in the annals of of investing. He's a rock star, and I don't know uh, if there are many people who are more knowledgeable and more influential uh, than he is. So the man who pretty much invented the blindfolded monkey throwing darts, the person who suggested that Wall Street create an index fund so that investors could make low-cost indexed investments. What else can I say? Uh, why don't I say nothing else? And without any further ado, my conversation with Bert Malkiel. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today, and I know you make fun of me when I say that, but my special guest today is truly a special guest and a legend in the world of finance. Let me read just a short version of his curriculum vitae. Uh, his name is Professor Burton Malkiel. He used to be the chemical bank professor of economics at the Princeton, uh, Princeton University. He is a two-time chairman of the economics department, served as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors from 1975 to 1977, became president of the American Finance Association. After that, he was dean of the Yale School of Management in the 80s and spent 28 years as a director of the Vanguard Group. He's probably best known for authoring the book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. It's now in its 11th edition. The paperback came out again, updated and revised. It's sold 1.5 million copies, and a number of people have said, if you read only one book about investing, Random Walk Down Wall Street is the one to read. Professor Malkiel, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very uh, Enjoy being here. Uh, and, and I am, am thrilled to have you. By the way, I, I left out so much from your CV. Um, bachelor's and MBA from Harvard in 53 and 55, doctorate from Princeton in 64. You're currently chief investment officer for Wealthfront, uh, which is a uh, software-based financial advisor. Um, uh, the list goes on and on. I I'm going to stop that because if I 
keep discussing your CV. We'll run out of time for questions. You're probably best known as someone who who was early in the history of recognizing that, quote, markets are efficient. Why are markets efficient? First of all, sometimes people get wrong what efficient markets mean. So, so give me a definition of so that. So let me, let me tell you the way I define it. There are uh, two parts to uh, the idea of efficient markets, and one part that many people associate with it that's wrong. The parts that are right are, one, that information gets reflected very quickly into stock prices. If there's some favorable news about a company uh, that's going to increase its stock price 10%, the stock price tends to go up 10% right away because anybody who uh, waits uh, uh, to uh, uh, get take advantage of it will find that quicker people have come in beforehand. So one information gets reflected right away. Now, what efficient markets is often associated with, which is wrong, is that Efficient markets mean the price is always right. The price is exactly the present value of all of the dividends and uh, earnings that are going to come in the future, and the price is perfectly right. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. The price is never right. In fact, prices are always wrong. What's right is that nobody knows for sure whether they're too high or too low, and that leads to the second point about efficient markets. It's not that the prices are always right. It's that it's never clear that uh, they are wrong. There's nothing systematically wrong about them. Therefore, there are no arbitrage opportunities. And therefore, the market is really very, very difficult to beat. And so information gets reflected, the market's tough to beat, but prices are not always right. We know perfectly well they're always wrong, but nobody knows for sure whether they're too high or too low. We were recently having a discussion about fair value and people were complaining, well, the market is not at fair value. And my my response was, well, you just briefly pass fair value as you careen too much to the upside or too much to the downside. You're saying even when you go buy fair value, we don't really know exactly yeah, what it uh, is. We don't know. Uh, we don't know for sure. Look, we know perfectly well that in March of 2000 there was a bubble in the stock market. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, internet companies selling at triple-digit multiples. We had companies changing their name. Uh, to put .com at the end of it, right. and the price would double. We know that there were crazy things going on. But the problem is the people who are associated with the view, I told you so, mm -hmm. I knew that. The problem is they knew it in 1992 and 1993. <laughs> That's the problem. After the fact, we know perfectly well that prices were wrong, but the difficulty was the people who said we knew it, knew it early in the 1990s and missed one of the best bull markets we've ever had. I, I very famously remember Louis Rukeyser's, his elves 
saying these things in 96. He ended up demoting a few of them because they were right. Stocks were overvalued, but so what? You missed four years of double-digit gains. This last collapse, I recall in real time, very, very few people were warning about credit, about derivatives, about housing. These days, I have met more people who claim to have seen that collapse coming, and that would be a little bit of uh, hindsight bias. No, exactly, and that's precisely the thing that happens. Uh, Before the fact, we really don't know, and we don't know today. Is the stock market too high or too low? It's high now. There's no question. Valuations are stretched. But it's also the case that the short-term government interest rate is zero. (laughs) And uh, the long-term interest rate uh, after inflation is probably zero or below zero. Mm -hmm. So in that environment, everything is going to be more highly priced. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest is Professor Burton Malkiel uh, of Princeton and uh, Vanguard and the author of A Random Walk Down Wall Street. The paperback is now in its 11th edition and it's sold a million and a half copies. Um, Let's talk a little bit about indexing versus uh, active management. Uh, there was a quote from the book that uh, I've always enjoyed. There's a number of quotes from the book, but you had said back in 1973, fund spokesmen are quick to point out that you can't buy the market averages. It's time the public could. So explain your role in the development of the index fund. Well, basically, I said that in 1973, and the first index fund was not started until 1976. Now, uh, you know, uh, I want to give Jack Bogle all the credit in the world because it's one thing for an academic to say, hey, there ought to be index funds. It's another thing for somebody to bet his company uh, on uh, starting an index fund. And let me tell you, it wasn't easy at the beginning. They had an underwriting where they were hoping to do $100 million or more in the index fund. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the book wasn't oversubscribed. They sold $11 million. And sometimes I used to joke, because uh, I then was on the Vanguard board, that Jack Bogle and I were about the only people I knew who actually owned shares in the index fund. It was very, very slow to catch on. But it did catch on. Uh, And in fact, last year, hundreds of millions of dollars moved from actively managed funds into index funds, and index funds now have maybe somewhere between 30 and 35 percent of uh, people's money. Of individuals or institutions? uh, More institutional than individual. Mm -hmm. Uh, Individuals are slower to catch on to this. So with uh, institutions, it's maybe 35 or more. With uh, individuals, it's probably a bit less than 30. But the point is the market is catching up to the idea. And uh, I am uh, obviously... Uh, simply delighted since I've basically been an evangelist for index funds all my life. So Vanguard, you you mentioned you were uh, you you served with Jack Bogle. You were on the board for twenty eight years. 
They're now over three trillion. That's trillion with, with a, a T. T. Yep, with right? a T. Of which two thirds are actively are actually passive indexes. Are actually they still have about a third that are uh, active management. Um, but that leads to a really interesting question: What's more significant, the low cost aspect of it or the passive asset aspect of it of indexing? Well, I think they're both. Uh, both are important. Uh, clearly, the low cost is important in that, uh, you know, let me tell you, any of us who talk about financial markets need to be very modest about what we know and don't know. But let me tell you the one thing I'm absolutely sure about with respect to financial markets, and that is the lower the fee I pay to the purveyor of the investment service, the more there's going to be for me. And the problem is for uh, active managers, it is still the case that probably 100 basis points, one percentage point a year is what they are charging. And the index fund or ETF, the uh, exchange traded index fund, charges five or four basis points. Uh, And that difference is basically a difference that uh, comes to the investor. It's also the case that trading is not free. Mm-hmm. There are bid-ask spreads. There are market impact costs. Uh, it's not free. So there's an extra cost, uh, including what I think people do not appreciate, and that's the tax cost of uh, the active trading. When you have an actively managed fund, you get a 1099 at the end of the year very often, and they will say, hey, we realized some short-term and long-term capital gains on your behalf, and you've got to report those on your income tax. You, you have a partner named Uncle Sam, and you, he's going to take 30% of, uh, exactly. of what you trade. Exactly. That, that's, that's quite astonishing. So how did, I'm curious, how did you find your way to Vanguard uh, from Princeton? Well, I think Vanguard found uh, its way to me <laughs> uh-huh. uh, in that people knew uh, that I had been a proselytizer for index funds. I uh, believed uh, uh, in uh, low cost, uh, and so it was such a very natural fit, and uh, Vanguard came to me. <laughs> I didn't come to them. So let me throw another of your quotes from the book out that, that I adore. And I'm curious as to the sort of pushback this generates. But by the way, we take this quote for granted. And I have found a number of quotes that are yours that a number of other people have have taken credit for. But in a random walk down Wall Street, you wrote a blindfolded monkey throwing darts at a newspaper's financial pages could select a portfolio that would do just as well as one selected carefully by the experts. What was the response to that? Oh, the uh, response was uh, uh, really uh, uh, <laughs> definitely bad. Uh, the uh, former uh, Bloomberg Business Week was uh, mm-hmm. just Business Week. Right. And my book, uh, when it first came out, was reviewed by an investment professional in Business Week. 
and it was probably the worst review I've ever had in my life. The reviewer said, this is the biggest piece of garbage that you could possibly really? imagine. Uh, because professional uh, uh, investment people really don't like to be compared uh, to a blindfolded uh, to, monkey. <laughs> to uh, a blindfolded chimpanzee. <laughs> so I remember for a long time... The Wall Street, maybe it was 15 years they were doing this. The Wall Street Journal was literally throwing darts at stock pages and comparing that to an index. Uh, ab absolutely. And in fact, they had invited me to throw out the first uh, oh, darts funny. when they uh, did this. And uh, basically, uh, what they found uh, was there was a little bit of an effect because when the Wall Street Journal put the column out, the column had uh, five picks of the experts, and the expert picks uh, maybe got a little bit for a day. The price went up a bit, but generally, after the 15 years of doing this, it came out uh, basically pretty even. And you know, that really leads to a very, very important point about indexing. You know, we talked about the markets being reasonably efficient. Suppose they weren't efficient. It doesn't matter. When you think of it, all the stocks in the United States have to be held by somebody. Mm -hmm. Every share of General Motors is held by somebody. Every share of Facebook is held by somebody. Any, every share of Salesforce is held by somebody. So what that means is if you as a professional investor hold just a few of the stocks <clears> – <throat> What that means is, and say that they're the good ones, the ones mm -hmm. that went up more than the market. What that has to mean is that somebody else is holding the stocks that went up less than the market. It, mu it must follow that investing has to be a zero-sum game. If somebody is uh, outperforming, then somebody else has got to be underperforming because the index holds everything. And the reason the index fund wins is the index fund is holding everything and s essentially charging a zero fee, and the active manager is holding some of the stocks and charging a 1% fee. So even if before fees, the active managers balance each other out, after fees, they're going to underperform. And what we know we know so clearly is year after year after year, the active funds are underperforming. Every year, I always read columns, this is going to be a stock picker's market year. <laughs> you know, every year people are going to say that, or beginning of this year, there's going to be more volatility this year, then active managers will be able to outperform. And Standard & Poor's does a so-called SPIVA report sure. each year. Standard & Poor's indices versus active. And every year we get the same thing. Two-thirds of the actively managed mutual funds underperform the index. And the third that outperform in one year aren't the same as the third that outperform in the next year. So that, uh, uh, you know... It's not that it's impossible to outperform. And in fact, there are a few outperformers. But when you go active, 
you're much more likely to be in the bottom end of the distribution. And index investing isn't mediocre investing. It isn't average investing. It's actually above average investing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Princeton Emeritus Professor uh, Burton Malkiel. He is probably best known for his book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. The paperback is now in its 11th edition. It's already sold over a million and a half copies and is widely regarded as the one book to read on investing if you're only going to read one. Uh, he is also, in addition to uh, a long and and glorious uh, academic career, he is also the chief investment officer of Wealthfront, which is one of the larger uh, new software-driven Asset management firms, which is running about $3 billion. Is that about right? Mm -hmm. So how did you get involved uh, with something like a robo-advisor, something like Wealthfront? Well, again, they, uh, just as with Vanguard, they, found uh, you. they uh, came uh, to me rather than vice versa. Uh, and again, it was just such a natural fit because A, they use only index funds. Mm -hmm. And as you know, uh, that's what I have believed in all of my life. And uh, secondly, uh, they uh, are charging uh, very low fees. They charge uh, nothing for the first $15,000 under mm -hmm. management. And then they charge uh, 25 basis points, a quarter of 1%, on anything over there versus uh, a traditional investment advisor that will put together a portfolio for you and uh, charge uh, probably at least 1% uh, and sometimes uh, even more. And the problem, I think, with many professional investment advisors is that we ought to recognize that they often have a conflict of interest. What mm -hmm. I think is not as well known as it should be is that if you go to an investment advisor who sits down with you and says, okay, uh, we'll put together a portfolio for you, that that advisor gets paid for selling you an actively managed fund. It's not only that the fund itself is charging you maybe 1%, but uh, there's a conflict of interest. The advisor, uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons why there's such a battle now about the so-called fiduciary standard. Uh, and again, what this uh, advisor, uh, this automated advisor, we have no conflict of interest. Right. We just use, in fact, uh, we use a lot of Vanguard ETFs, but if Charles Schwab has a cheaper ETF, uh, we will use that. And we are able to automatically rebalance the portfolio mm -hmm. to keep it within the risk level that the uh, client uh, wants. If it's a taxable account, uh, we do uh, tax loss harvesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, uh, last year, we had a bit of the portfolio in emerging markets Emerging markets were terrible last year, mm -hmm. so that if you bought an emerging market ETF, you had a loss. What we will then do is we will then sell that ETF, 
keep your position in emerging markets by buying another one that's similar but not identical. And the reason you can do that and have it not be a wash sale is, say you sell an MSCI emerging market ETF Mm -hmm. and you buy a Vanguard one, they are indexed to two different indices, so it's not a wash sale. And so we're able to do all the things that a sophisticated investment advisor will do for you uh, and do it at a fraction of the cost. And again, uh, as I said before, the thing I'm sure about is the lower the cost that I pay, the more there's going to be for me. And uh, I think it's been uh, uh, very effective. And in fact, in a lousy year like last year, we were able to realize for various accounts between two and three percentage points of tax losses so that even in a year when markets were pretty darn flat mm-hmm. and did very little, we were able to, uh, I think, benefit uh, the people uh, who are our clients. So so within this, uh, and I, I find the term robo-advisor to be a little misleading, but- Well, within- I don't like it because it suggests that in fact, uh, you know, there's some uh, robot. senseless yeah. robot who's doing it. And since I'm the chief investment officer, I can tell you that in fact, uh, there are a lot of smart people behind uh, uh, what we are doing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Burton Malkiel, formerly of Princeton, where he is still uh Professor uh, Emeritus, uh, a former uh, board member of Vanguard for 28 years, and author, now in its 11th edition, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Uh, The book has sold over a million and a half copies. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about um, some other guests I've had on the show that, that you know. So you worked with Jack Bogle for a number of years. He was a guest on the show a few months ago. What can you tell us about Jack that that we probably don't know? Well, I don't know whether, uh, you know, Jack is very well known, and I think uh, uh, some of uh, his uh, habits are uh, uh, probably uh, better known than the habits of some of your other guests. But one of the things about uh, Jack is that maybe people don't know is this idea of low cost Uh, is really into his DNA. This is a guy who will go to a hotel, uh, and uh, when they say, well, we've got a very good room and we've got a bargain, uh, uh, it's $150 a night, Jack will go and say, uh, well, do you have anything at $100 a night? Jack uh, has this sort of Calvinist streak Mm -hmm. uh, that... uh, uh, he uh, uh, as uh, much uh, money as he has, and he's certainly been very successful financially, just lives his life as frugally as you can uh, uh, imagine. And of course, I think that's really what has gotten into uh, his company, a Vanguard, that uh, uh, that's really into uh, Jack's uh, uh, DNA. And You know, the interesting thing, I'll tell you one other little funny story about uh, uh, Jack uh, uh, Bogle. Uh, 
so many Wall Street people uh, have, uh, you know, the $8,000 uh, watch on and uh, the, Italian, uh, uh, the Italian suits and so forth. Uh, Jack is always sort of in a rumpled uh, suit. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly enough, when he first met Warren Buffett, uh, they were actually at a hotel together, and uh, Jack recognized Warren, went up and uh, uh, introduced himself. And he said to Warren, you know, the thing I really like about you is you have rumpled suits just the same uh, as uh, as I do. And Jack and Warren have become very, very good friends. And as you probably know, because Warren is the sort of exception to indexing that everybody mentions, that Warren has said, I've got uh, told my widow uh, uh, when I'm gone, I just want you to own uh, index funds. So there's a couple of things about uh, uh, Jack. He's been a lifelong friend and uh, 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 just a wonderful guy. But Buffett has said publicly most people should be in indexes. That, that Absolutely. That should be what, what the average person should be doing. But So let's talk a, a second about Buffett because when we talk about the efficient – uh, the concept about the efficient market uh, hypothesis, the name that always comes up is uh, Warren Buffett. Is is he an outlier? Is he lucky? Or is he uniquely skilled? Look, I think uh, he is enormously uh, skilled. I wouldn't take anything away from him. But uh, he's also a very good businessman. Let me tell you a little story. Uh, at one point when I was the uh, dean of the Yale Management School, uh, we had um, Catherine Graham come to speak to uh, oh, sure. our class, and um, she fortunately got the time wrong, but not to come an hour later, an hour earlier. So I was able to sit down with her for about an hour. And, of course, the first thing I wanted to ask her was, look, I know that one of Warren Buffett's first great investments was the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And tell me about uh, uh, Buffett, uh, because Buffett generally buys companies or huge stakes in in companies. And she said, uh, I said, what was it like working with him? She said, you know, when uh, I had learned that he had bought a big stake uh, in our company, I was just scared to death. I thought he clearly wanted to take over the company uh, and I would be out in my ear. So I called him and he said, no, really, I just uh, did this as an investment. And she said, I really sort of liked him. He seemed very honest uh, and straightforward. And I then confided in him, we're going bankrupt. We're really in terrible shape. Would you please come join my board and help me write this company? Buffett joined the board. Buffett actually was, to Catherine Graham, enormously helpful as a business person, Mm -hmm. moving the thing around and making it finally successful. And so when you think of Warren Buffett, I don't think it's just that he read Graham and Dodd, bought a value stock, and uh, it it was good— uh, he's also uh, made sure, not himself, but he's put good management in and has helped managements. And uh, I think that's been the genius of uh, Warren Buffett, as opposed to 
Uh, no, it's very easy. You just read Graham and Dodd and run a good portfolio. Let me also say about Buffett that given the size that Berkshire Hathaway is now, it's virtually impossible for him to uh, do the kinds of things that he has done uh, in the past. He he does um, bring a certain uh, good housekeeping stamp of approval, and he is also, and I recall the most recent edition, you referenced him, he gets access and creates deals that the average stock picker is just never going to have access to. Oh, absolutely. And he's got the uh, capital that during the financial crisis, uh, he was able to go to financial institutions, uh, get a 10% coupon, uh, get an equity participation, and do what other people were not able to do. So last word about Buffett. He made a tremendous investment in Goldman Sachs, yep, which turned exactly. out to be hugely, hugely successful. Most people probably don't realize that he had offered Dick Fold of Lehman Brothers an investment, and Fold turned him down, which is stop and think about how, how brilliant yeah. an insight uh, that was. Yeah. So so let me go back to um, some of some of my favorite quotes from the book. Uh, I recall hearing this way back when, and then when I started researching um, things for this conversation, I was shocked to see that this was a quote of yours. You had written in or said in some interview, tip of the week, if you bought $1,000 worth of Nortel stock one year ago, by the way, this was in the late 90s when Nortel uh, symbol NT was a house of fire. Right. Um, if you had bought a thousand dollars worth of Nortel a year ago, today it's worth forty nine dollars. But if instead you went out and bought a thousand dollars worth of Budweiser, the beer, not Anheuser Busch stock, a year ago, if you drank all the beer and traded in all the cans for the nickel deposit, it'd be worth seventy nine dollars more than Nortel. My advice to you. Start drinking heavily. I remember seeing that in the late 90s, and it was never attributed to you. Is that really a quote from Burton Malkiel? Oh, yes, it definitely is. But, you know, my feeling is imitation is the best form of uh, flattery. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'd obviously prefer uh, that uh, someone gave me credit for it. But uh, the imitation is fine. And the point about the book, and I think one of the reasons that the book has done well, is that it is written in a rather lighthearted fashion because a lot of people's eyes glaze over when they're talking about facts and figures and numbers. So uh, I've really tried as hard as I could to make it uh, as interesting as possible. Well, you certainly, you certainly succeeded there. Um, another book that, that I've been a fan of uh, is the Lo Winning the Losers Game by Charlie Ellis. He was also on the board of uh, Vanguard for a long time and uh, on the Yale, advisement, Yale Endowment Advisory Board yes. where, where you were um, uh, chairman of the School of Management. I assume you and Charlie know each other fairly well. Uh, we do know each other fairly well, and uh, uh, Charlie and I have actually uh, written things uh, together. And, uh, and again, I think one of the things that Charlie, and I want to give him credit, this is his, uh, Charlie has, I think, uh, 
uh, just uh, this uh, wonderful analogy about investing that is just so true. Uh, and it's one of the things he's best known uh, for. He says, listen, suppose you're a tennis player, but you're not a professional. Now, professionals win points by some, uh, you know, huge, uh, fast serve, uh, some drop shot, uh, some superb shot uh, that uh, the other player can't get. But when you think of ordinary people playing tennis, the people who win are the people who've just made the fewer errors. That trying to do something extra is a loser's game. And uh, that, of course, is what Charlie is best known for. Obviously, Charlie and I are kindred spirits in that we both uh, believe in indexing. Charlie, for example, started his career and started a company, Greenwich Associates, mm -hmm. where they were helping to choose the best investment advisors. Charlie believed in active management, and only after experience with it he now realizes that he is a convert and uh, uh, there is no uh, better person uh, to uh, sing the praises of indexing than Charlie Ellis. Uh, he's a great guy and uh, a very good writer. So if people want to find more of your writings other than the book, and this isn't the only book, you've written a number of them, where else would they go to, to learn more about the works of Burton Malkiel? Well, I've uh, uh, done uh, other uh, things uh, such as, and maybe this you know, gets into a different uh, subject, uh, I've written about emerging markets in a book called Global Bargain Hunting. I've written about China in a book called From Wall Street to the Great Wall. Uh, and I think in general today, uh, Probably, if I have any investment advice for a long-run portfolio, I suspect that people are uh, smitten with what we call the home country bias, uh -huh. that they just have U.S. stocks uh, to uh, the detriment, uh, to their own detriment, and they are ignoring uh, some of the fastest growing parts of the world. Emerging markets now have about half of the world's GDP. Emerging markets have 85% of the world's population. Emerging markets have about 25% of the world's capitalization. And today, emerging markets are very unpopular. Which it, means attractively priced. Which means that they are probably the most attractively priced markets in the world. Now, that doesn't mean the next month or the next year they're going to do well. But we can look at very long-run rates of return and get some idea as to whether they're going to be high or low by looking at valuations. And look, valuations in the United States are high. Mm -hmm. They're higher than average. Because emerging markets have been so unpopular, valuations are well below normal. Emerging markets are still growing. Uh, China's slowing down. Yeah, 
China's probably only growing at six, six and a half percent now rather than 10. And everybody says China's crashing and burning. I wish we were growing at six <laughs> percent. For uh, sure. Uh, so I think there's a lot of growth there. Valuations are better. And I just think that if somebody has a portfolio and has nothing in emerging markets, you ought to take a look. And of course, I would say you take a look by uh, indexing because a lot of people say, oh, emerging markets are very inefficient. You don't want to index there. In fact, 90% of emerging market active managers are outperformed by the index. Wow. In part because of the inefficiency of emerging markets. So expensive. Bid ask spreads are high, mm -hmm. market impact costs. When you buy and sell, there are stamp taxes in emerging mm -hmm. markets. You really want to be more passive there. And uh, my advice for investors is take a look, and at least a small piece of the portfolio uh, should be put there. And I think over the next decade, uh, people will be well served. This puts you a little bit at odds with Jack Bogle, who is not a fan of investing overseas. He's concerned about the currency risk. And he says, hey, half of the S&P 500 uh, revenue comes from overseas. How do you respond to Jack? Well, absolutely. Uh, there's no question you get some of it with U.S. multinationals. But my uh, feeling is uh, you will also get some good portfolio effects because emerging markets are not uh, totally correlated with the U.S. market. I think uh, that you're uh, missing something. And even though Jack is one of my uh, absolutely uh, – uh, best friends, and we agree on 95% of things. Jack also doesn't like ETFs, and I think ETFs right. are a great uh, are a, a great invention and uh, uh, great for people. So a little Burton Malkiel, Jack Bogle trivia. Uh, my, my head of research and I were putting these questions together, and we noticed that Jack Bogle was born at the peak of the 1929 market, and you were born at the depth of the crash. Uh-huh. That's very interesting. That's a fascinating little bit of uh, trivia. Fascinating uh, bit of uh, information. And uh, uh, it. Uh, uh, I was a depression baby, and uh, there's no... Uh, so, is, so is Jack. Um, Professor Malkiel, you can hang around a little bit. We'll, we'll continue chatting for a while. Sure. So, uh, and if I forget to say this later, thank you so much for doing this and being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Professor Burton Malkiel of Princeton University, author of A Random Walk Down Wall Street, now in its 11th edition. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras, where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue chatting about all things investing. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can sign up for my daily reads also at Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC. Welcome to the podcast extras. Uh, Bert, thank you so much for doing this. This is really fascinating. Uh, I'm a fan of yours for forever. You could tell by the other folks I've had on the show. 
Jack Bogle, Charlie Ellis, Bill McNabb, Jack Brennan. Oh yeah, you you All are good friends. You you are right in the same circle of you bet. of excellence uh, as as these folks. Uh, there are so many questions I want to get to you uh, get through. Let let's see how many of these we can we can click through. Let let me start with a softball. Why is stock picking so difficult? Uh, basically, it's partly difficult is that partly the reason is that there are so many people doing it and that they are so professional uh, in doing it. You know, if you have a market where, say, 10% of the people in the market are professional and 90% uh, are individuals who don't know anything. And they will pick a stock because they like the name. Mm-hmm. Or they will pick a stock uh, uh, because uh, uh, they drive a Fiat, so they'll buy Fiat Chrysler. They'll do mm-hmm. it that way. That gives the professionals a possibility of finding things that may be improperly priced. But when you have a market now that is 90% professional and probably 95% of the trading is done professionally, Mm -hmm. that competition means that if somebody's got a good idea, they act on it and the price reflects that good idea. And that's, I think, the problem. When you've got a market that uh, you have individuals uh, who are buying stocks for different reasons other than uh, do they represent good value. Maybe there's a chance of doing it, and maybe this worked 50 years ago. Right. But the problem is as the market gets more and more professional, when people are better trained, when people have better sources of information, when people can go to their Bloomberg terminals and uh, the information gets disseminated immediately to all the professionals, it's then harder and harder to actually beat the market. So that raises another question. That raises a number of other questions. Uh, Why are so many people still so involved in chasing alpha. Why is it that the majority of market participants seem to be spending so much time chasing uh, that the dream of outperformance? Uh, let me give you two reasons. One is uh, that uh, they get paid for doing it. Okay. This is And well paid at that. Uh, this is a very uh, well paid uh, profession. Uh, so uh, uh, they do get paid for it. The second is, and this goes to um, the work of uh, uh, Danny Kahneman, mm-hmm. uh, who was one of my colleagues at Princeton, that there does seem to be in our DNA uh, a feeling of over-optimism. Absolutely. These people who are chasing alpha, yeah, they do it because they get paid to do it, but I think they honestly... You know, it's it's not that they're bad people and that they're lying. They really believe they've drank that the they've Kool-Aid. Got something. Yep. Yeah, they drank, and the and and this is, I think, the problem uh, that uh, uh, this over optimism is just a part of our human nature. Uh, 
uh, and uh, uh, even though they think it's difficult, uh, they think I can do it. You know, we uh, uh, we and uh, and uh, we now is myself and Danny Kahneman because I've done these experiments. You ask a group of students. I've got two hundred students in the room, and I uh, uh, give them some questionnaires. And one of them is, uh, "Are you?" Uh, a better driver or a worse driver. driver than all the other students in the room. And 90% of them say that they're better than average. It's like Lake Wobegon. Yes, uh, absolutely. You know, we're, all better, we're all better than average. And I think that there's a lot of that in, uh, uh, in this, that, uh, you know, you just, uh, uh, you, 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 you hope uh, and you think that, uh, yeah, it's hard to do, but I can do it. You know, the the joke story about this being in our DNA is a few hundred thousand years ago, there were two groups of cavemen, and one group of cavemen saw some mammoth down on the plains and said, I have an idea, let's take sharpened sticks and see if we could go bring down this three-ton mammoth. And the other group of people weren't optimistic and they stayed in the cave. Well, the, the first cave might have lost a few participants, but they had mammoth meat all winter and they made it through to the spring. The risk-averse group, they didn't have anything to eat, and therefore we, we have tend to be over-optimistic. We may lose a few people along the way, but as a group, the tribal will survive. And I always thought that was an amusing yeah, no, description. I think, uh, I think that's right, because I really do think it's in our DNA. So... Uh, this raises another question. Uh, I mentioned Vanguard is now up to $3 trillion with a T, uh, charging an average of something like 11 basis points across all their funds. But at the same time, the hedge fund community is also up to $3 trillion, and they charge 200 basis points plus another 20% of the profits. Some people have described hedge funds as a, uh, a fee transfer mechanism uh, disguised as a asset class. How do we explain the simultaneous success of really low-cost indexing and really expensive active private management? Well, I don't think the hedge fund fees uh, are going to continue. I think there's already uh, some pressure on the fees and there are some institutional investors, such as CalPERS, Absolutely. who have, in fact, uh, uh, realized that uh, this may not be as good a deal as they had hoped. Hedge funds worked for a while. And, you know, again, this goes back to the paradox uh, of uh, professional advice. At the beginning, there were hedge funds who made a lot of money and who actually did find arbitrage opportunities. Let me give you an example. Uh, we have Standard & Poor's futures. Mm -hmm. We have Standard & Poor's ETFs. Sometimes those futures and the ETFs sold at prices that were different from the prices of the underlying. And when you were able to do efficiently a program trade, you might be able to get an arbitrage where uh, the future's too high, so you short the future and buy the underlying or vice versa. It's a relatively low-risk transaction. Yeah, there were some arbitrages. 
and some hedge funds, like Citadel was one example mm-hmm. of a hedge fund that uh, got built up that way, did very, very well. Those opportunities now have basically been arbitraged away. That's the idea of efficiency, that as more and more good people get into something, the opportunity goes away. It's like, you know, suppose there was a Christmas rally that the market goes up between Christmas and New Year's. Well, then, if you know about it, then what you do is you buy the day before the Christmas holiday and you sell the day before New Year's uh, in order to take advantage of it. But then you realize you've got to go two days before and sell two days uh, before the end, and then, of course, it disappears. And so I think what's happened is that worked for a while. Mm -hmm. It does not work now, and the hedge fund returns have been uh, just terrible uh, over the last five years. And I think what you are seeing slowly, these things don't happen overnight, but slowly you are seeing pressure on fees and more and more institutions questioning uh, uh, the idea of hedge funds. And, and again, let me talk about another person. I don't know if you've ever had him on your show, uh, David Swenson, uh, who wrote the book on institutional management of using hedge funds. And David was then going to write a book for individuals. He then looked at the situation today and said, oh, my God, you can't do it anymore. Buy index funds. I haven't had Swenson on, but I'd absolutely love to. You know, you mentioned uh, some years ago the hedge funds were making money. Jim Chanos, who runs Kinecos Associates, said 25 years ago when he, or 30 years ago when he launched his hedge fund, there were about 100, 100 hedge funds, and they were all making alpha. They were all actually making money. Now there's 10,000 hedge funds, and the same 100 hedge funds are still uh, making creating alpha, and none of the rest are. So uh, you're right. There's a handful of them that did, and some of whom still are. Uh, look at look at Renaissance Technologies and Jim Simons, um, a hand uh, David Tepper and Appaloosa Associates. There's a small run of folks that seem to be making money. I don't want to quite say consistently, although when you look at Bridgewater and you look at Renaissance, some of them have been fairly consistent over the years, but it sounds like the you're, you're of the opinion the bulk of them just don't get it done. Uh, my, I think the bulk of them don't, and I think it's getting harder and harder, and the paradox of professional advice, uh, if it works, it's going to destroy the alphas, and I'm very suspicious. I don't think that, uh, suppose there even is some alpha around, mm-hmm. uh, the two and twenty means the alpha's all gonna go to the purveyor of the service. Right. I think there'll be less and less of it. And again, uh, when we talk about uh, the things uh, that Yale University did, that my own university did, remember also that a lot of these things, it's less well known would cut their own deals with these people sure. and they wouldn't necessarily pay two and twenty. The alphas that are around, if there are any, are not going to justify 2 and 20 for the buyer of the fund. So let me throw another quote at yours that, uh, of you. <laughs> let me know, throw another quote at you of yours that, that I really like. It's not that stock prices are capricious. 
It's that the news is capricious. Explain what you meant by that. Well, look, if uh, there is uh, uh, a headline uh, that comes out uh, tomorrow uh, and it says uh, men's stores uh, are gearing up for a Father's Day buying season. That's not news. I could have written that uh, six months ago. It's a calendar. You know Christmas is coming. I know the calendar. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, What's news is something that you can't predict from the past. What's news is, uh, for example, today it looks like an Egyptian airliner was Mm -hmm. taken down by terrorists. That's news You couldn't predict that yesterday. You couldn't predict that the day before. And so news is in some sense random, and by random I mean unpredictable. And it's the unpredictable things that move prices. And what I am suggesting is that to the extent that they mean that prices should be higher or lower, the prices change right away. So... I, I like the, the way you describe that. Let's talk a little bit about what's become one of the hottest bu- buzzwords in investing, smart beta, which you actually uh, added a whole section in the in the A whole new edition. chapter on smart beta. On, so, so is smart beta just smart marketing or does it have some real value? I believe that smart beta is mainly smart marketing and it's not smart investing. Now, what smart beta is, is the following. What we know from history is that there are certain factors that have been associated with somewhat higher stock returns. Example, We know over time the returns from smaller companies have been generally a little bit higher than the return from larger companies. Now, my sense is that's probably right. It probably will continue. But in fact, smaller companies are riskier Mm -hmm. than larger companies. So that if you get a somewhat higher rate of return for taking on more risk, that doesn't mean the market is inefficient. That doesn't mean it's a real alpha. That just means you took on more risk. Uh, Junk bonds yield more than AAA bonds, of of which there are only a few now. But the point is, yes, you can get a higher rate of return for taking on more risk. Uh, So what Smart Beta says is, Let's put the portfolio together with some of these factors Mm -hmm. that have been associated with higher returns. And my sense is that either you get the higher rate of return because you've taken on more risk or that the factor isn't nearly as dependable uh, as it's been in the past. For example, uh, value has generally done a little better than growth Mm -hmm. uh, over the years, I think largely because uh, of the situation uh, in the year 2000 when growth stocks sold to triple-digit multiples and uh, 
Uh, I remember my own public service uh, of New Jersey sold at a multiple not too much over 10. So obviously the growth stocks went way down. The value stocks did well. Not dependable, though, year to year. In fact, the last few years, value stocks have been a trap. They Mm -hmm. haven't been good. So my sense is it's really an excuse to charge instead of five basis points, 75 or 100 basis points. And if you do get a higher rate of return, it's only because you've taken on more risk. And these other factors are really not nearly as dependable as the proselytizers for smart beta suggest. So let's hold smart beta aside for a second and talk about the French Fama three-factor model, which since has been expanded to, I think, five factors. So small cap is one. Value is the other. That's the the three-factor. And the regular beta, the regular volatility, is the third one of the Fama French three-factor model. Now, now there's also two additional factors. One is quality, where you're avoiding heavily indebted or some other quantitatively way to, to eliminate names. And momentum, on top of it, how do we adjust those sort of models that seem to do somewhat better than the actual um, benchmark? Is it that there are inefficiencies and it's too challenging to, to sift through? When you look at the Wall Street coverage, for example, the analyst coverage of big cap stocks, Apple, Walmart, uh, Google, there's a uh, hundred analysts covering them. You look at any of the mid-sized or even small cap stocks, there's a dearth of coverage. There's a dearth of banking services. It seems like there's not a lot of information about that. Is that potentially an inefficiency that that could contribute to small cap so-called premium? Uh, It's possible, but I would also say uh, since there are a lot of small caps uh, that – uh, really can lose half or three-quarters sure. of their uh, value. Uh, they're also, I think, in my view, intrinsically riskier. And I think that's the other point about this. Let's take momentum, which is one of the ones that there's been a lot of recent work on. There is a little bit of past evidence mm-hmm. that there is some uh, momentum in the market. There are also what is called momentum crashes. Sure. That sometimes you get a momentum stock and uh, it works fine uh, until uh, uh, until it doesn't. I mean, <laughs> again, you know, uh, uh, this uh, a fellow on a different network uh, uh, who will be nameless uh, would talk about the FANG stocks. Sure. Uh, Facebook. You know, all of these were just doing well. There was a lot of momentum. And then all of a sudden, uh, it crashed. Right. And so while there might be something there, I think there's also an inherent risk in following some of those uh, factors. So, again, my view is that uh, they're not nearly as dependable as people argue they are. Mm -hmm. They probably are associated with larger risk. And as I've looked at all the smart beta ETFs over the last five years, I do not find that as a group, after expenses, 
that they have in fact been a good deal for investors. So my view is plain vanilla capitalization weighted indexing is still, in my view, the way to go. So given the success of indexing and the success of Vanguard and a host of other advisory firms that advocate indexing, that leads to an obvious question. When does indexing get to be too big? Can we ever reach a point where too many people are in, are in indexes and that creates opportunities for the active managers? Well, you know, when indexing is 95% of the total, I might start to worry about that. But I think with uh, indexing 30 to 35% of the total, there are still plenty of active managers out there uh, to make sure that information gets reflected quickly. And in fact, I think it'll always be the case. Suppose indexing was so great that in fact, the market wasn't reflecting the news. Then it will pay somebody to jump into the market. Right. And, you know, that's the wonderful thing about capitalism. Uh, if you have free markets and somebody can jump into a market, if there is an opportunity, you can count on the fact that somebody will. So I'm not worried about it. Uh, if, uh, in fact, it was the case that markets were getting less and less efficient in reflecting information, believe me, there'd be a profit motive for somebody to jump in uh, because if there's a chance to make money in this world, uh, that's the beauty of capitalism. Somebody will find a way to do it. So I mentioned to a friend that uh, I was speaking with you today and uh, this person is an active manager and he said... Ask him what his problem is with market timing. If I see a train coming down the tracks, don't I want to jump out of the way? So I know what the answer is, but let's hear it directly from well, you. Well, look, uh, absolutely you want to jump out of the way. The problem is uh, it just isn't that obvious that there's the train uh, coming. You know, maybe, uh, maybe it's a light at the end of the tunnel right. rather than the train coming in the opposite direction. And I think the people who have tried to do market timing uh, have, I think, uh, uh, really not been successful. I have never known. Look, I, I, remember, I've been uh, 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 on uh, uh, boards like Vanguard where we had some people trying to do market timing because Vanguard, uh, as you pointed out earlier, has some actively managed funds. Uh, I've been a long-term director of uh, Prudential Financial. We had people trying to... I have never known anyone who could consistently time the market. And in fact, I've never known anyone who knows anyone who was able to consistently time the market. Sure, jump out of the uh, tracks if a train is coming, but it isn't that obvious. So let's talk a little bit about the behavioral side. We've alluded to it throughout the conversation. Behavioral economics today is widely understood, widely followed. Back a few uh, a decade or two ago, it really wasn't uh, understood. Here's a quote from you, and this is directly from the book. There are four factors that create a rational market behavior. Overconfidence, biased judgments, herd mentality, 
and loss aversion. What does that mean to the, to the average investor? Well, I think when you actually look at how this works with what people do, let me tell you what I think the main lesson is. One of the things that we know is that people tend to sell out when things are looking grim and to buy when everybody is optimistic. We, we have very good data on the flow of money from individuals into equity mutual funds. And what we know from those data uh, is the following fact, that money flows into the market when everyone's optimistic. In the first quarter of 2000, at the top of what clearly in retrospect was a bubble, more money came into equity mutual funds than ever before. That, that quarter, Q1-2000. Q1-2000, that's when the money came right, in. Right at the top. And, in fact, it went into the growth funds. It went into probably the most overpriced part of the market. We used to have a sick joke at Vanguard Okay. Uh, at that period because uh, value funds, which were actually cheap, mm-hmm. had outflows. We, uh, we at Vanguard, the flagship value fund that we had was called the Windsor Fund. Sure. It was run by a man by the name of John Neff, a great money manager. He was losing money all the time. Now, you don't know in a mutual fund complex exactly where those flows were going because when you redeem in a complex like Vanguard, you just redeem the fund and it goes into the money market fund. So you have to look at where the checks were written. Mm-hmm. So we looked at where the checks were written. And in fact, the checks were being written to this company in Denver called Jan- Janus. Oh, sure. And the Janus Fund had something called the Janus 20, the 20 best ideas that they had. They were all internet companies. And the sick joke that we had is, you know, why do we have to go and do the accounting of having the money go from Windsor into the money fund and then to Janus? Why don't we just package up the money and send it to Denver right away? Well, you know what happened. The uh, Janus fund lost 80% of its uh, value. Uh, In fact, value funds did very well after Mm -hmm. the market uh, crashed. So here is the problem. People are putting their money in when they're optimistic. They're going into this mo- these momentum types of things. The money then came out when the market was low in 2002. And when did most of the money come out of the stock market? Out of equity mutual funds. Individuals took out scores and scores of dollars uh, in the third quarter of 2008 Mm-hmm. Which turned uh, that was when the mar- the when the world was collapsing, and when we that, we saw the first quarter of two thousand nine, the flows actually accelerated, and there was just a huge get me out at any price. I don't uh, care exactly, and of course, what we know is uh, that was precisely the time to get in rather than going out, and in fact, this is where our emotions get a hold of us. And in fact, if it's the best thing that an investment advisor can do, 
whether it's a regular investment advisor or one of the automated advisors that I work with, is to keep people on an even keel. That's the best lesson that we can have is, for heaven's sakes, uh, don't let your emotions get a hold of you. Be a regular investor for retirement. Uh, Put money in uh, every pay period, every quarter. You'll get take the advantage of dollar cost averaging, which in a volatile market will actually help you because you buy more shares when the price is down right. than when the price is up. Don't try to time the market because it's not that you don't. It's even worse than that you don't know how to do it. It's that when you do it, you're much more likely to be wrong rather than right. One of the things I noticed in the 0809 collapse was even the people who saw the train coming and got off the tracks when the market bottomed in March 09, they refused to believe it. They stayed in cash, and we watched people sit in cash 09, in 2010, and 2011, and all we heard about for a couple of years was, this is just a head fake, this is a temporary right. rally, it's going to go even lower And what are we, 206% higher from then? It's amazing. And the lesson about timing is uh, not only do you not know uh, when to get in, you don't know when to get out. And when you market time, you got to be right twice. you got to know when to get out and when to get in. And uh, nobody, and I really believe this, nobody but nobody can do that. So you mentioned the behavioral counseling for financial advisors as well as the software um, advisors. Uh, let me let me ask a question a little differently. What is it that the financial services industry actually gets right for their customers? To the extent that they get their customers to diversify, mm-hmm. to have some safe parts of the portfolio to keep on an even keel, uh, to tax uh, manage, that is to the extent that you have uh, an IRA or a 401k, to the extent that you have that and have some fixed rate instruments, uh, they ought to go into uh, that part of the portfolio Uh, And to the extent that you're in the taxable portfolio, maybe that's when you put some municipal bonds in Mm -hmm. if you want some bonds. And, you know, this may seem very obvious, but that's something that individuals don't obviously think about. So there's a lot that financial advisors uh, can do. Uh, And uh, what I think is particularly useful uh, in terms of what I'm doing with this automated advisor is if we can do it more efficiently, if we can do it at lower cost, it's going to be much better for the individual. So we have about 30 minutes left before I have to send you off to chat with Arthur Levitt. Before I I do that, let me run through some of my favorite questions. I ask all of my guests Um, it didn't look like you were going to go into finance when you came out of school, uh, with an MBA. I, I, from what I read, you were thinking about 
going into business rather than finance. How did you make that transition? What what shifted your focus more towards investing, asset management, and finance rather than working with a, a corporate entity? Well, I was always uh, interested in finance. I mean, I grew up a poor kid uh, in uh, Roxbury, Massachusetts, uh, which is part of Boston. And I, uh, we uh, lived in a tenement house. We had no money. Uh, but I was just sort of fascinated with numbers. I was fascinated with the stock market. I had no uh, money in the stock market, but I knew uh, the price of General Motors stock as well as I knew Ted Williams' batting average. Uh-huh. Uh, and when I was in college, I was a good economics student, and uh, my professors in college said, you ought to go to graduate school and be an economist. And I said, no, no, look, and I grew up poor. I want to go and make some money. So I did go into, uh, I did go to business school. I did uh, then uh, go into Wall Street. I worked for Smith Barney for oh, really? uh, almost three years. Mm-hmm. I was uh, an investment banker. Uh, but what I found was I was thinking, I really uh, did like economics. I was trying to go to uh, NYU uh, and get a PhD at the same time that I worked for Smith Barney. But I was uh, an investment banker. I was traveling. I was missing more of my classes. And what finally happened was I finally did make enough money so that I didn't feel poor anymore. And I took a leave of absence to uh, go to Princeton, uh, uh, get a Ph.D. I expected to go back into Wall Street, uh, still Mm -hmm. liking finance. But an interesting thing happened. Uh, They said to me, hey, you've been a pretty good student. Uh, Come and stay and teach. Really? And so two things happened. Uh, I said, all right, I'll try it for a year and see if I like it. And secondly, Prudential Financial uh, had had a, a scandal at one point where the chairman was having Prudential lend to some of the entities that the chairman uh, controlled. And uh, the legislature decided that there had to be six public directors of Prudential chosen by the the Chief Justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court. The Chief Justice interviewed a number of people for this, including me, put me on the Prudential board, and I then came to the point and said, you know, I could be a professor and still be a business. You know, I sort of never decided when I, right. what I he, wanted to he be when I grew gave you both up. options. He gave me both options. I then was on the Prudential board uh, for uh, uh, longer, actually, than even on the Vanguard board. Oh, really? So that I uh, uh, then being on the Prudential board uh, and knowing other people got on other boards uh, and basically uh, became uh, someone who could live in both worlds and who could make a good living from uh, being in the business world mm-hmm. uh, and uh, did the writing uh, and teaching that I enjoyed. I enjoyed teaching. It's one of the reasons why I wrote Random Walk. Oh, really? That's interesting. So uh, basically, that was kind of my career of not deciding what I wanted to be when I grew up uh, and in fact, thinking, well, maybe I can do both things, and I have. Uh, you taught at 
at Princeton, uh, am I right in saying almost 40 years? Is that yeah. right? That, well, that... I, I was at uh, Princeton. Uh, as uh, you pointed out in your introduction, I worked for the government for a couple of years on the President's Council of Economic Advisors. I was a management school dean at Yale for seven years. Mm -hmm. So I've done a lot of different things, and I've enjoyed that because I think life is richer the, to the extent that you get more and more experiences. Always, always keep it fresh. Always, always mix it up. So let me ask you uh, this fascinating question. Who were your early mentors? Who, who was giving you advice and insight as to what to do with your career? Well, as I said, I think I had a couple of uh, uh, professors who were very influential, who really did want me to be uh, an academic, uh, who, in fact, uh, uh, were uh, very disappointed uh, uh, when uh, uh, I first went into uh, business. Within the uh, uh, business uh, community, I guess uh, 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 people uh, like uh, uh, Jack Bogle, who we've talked mm -hmm. about uh, before, who I liked particularly both because he and I did see eye to eye on 95% of the things about investing, and who also had a social conscience. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a business person who showed you that you can actually do well financially by doing well for your client. And I guess that was a particular influence for me in the things that I had uh, done. Uh, and look, finance is fascinating. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, as I said, it, it interested me before I had any money and could do anything uh, uh, with it. So uh, uh, finance is fascinating, and I do think that uh, uh, while uh, a lot of people are very angry about finance because uh, uh, finance did uh, practically bring the world down in the financial crisis, uh, finance uh, is also absolutely essential uh, and uh, can help people uh, more than it can hurt them. What what's a financial crisis or two amongst friends, right? right. It's um, so so. You mentioned, and I'm only kidding. Before you people start sending me emails, um, you mentioned some mentors. You previously mentioned David Swenson of Yale and Warren Buffett. Any other investors stand out as influencing your thought process or affecting the way you looked at markets? No, I think that uh, uh, clearly uh, those are the main names in terms of my own career and mm -hmm. my own life uh, of people who have uh, uh, been uh, influential. So let's talk about some books. Uh, in addition to the 11th edition of A Random Walk Down Wall Street, uh, tell us about some books that you found influential they could be fiction nonfiction. they don't have to have anything to do with finance what are some of the books that that very much influenced your thought process well let me give you one in the finance uh, uh, academic area and um, uh, one uh, 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 part of uh, uh, you know my own uh, uh, career you know sometimes I think 
it would be nice to have eight or nine lives because there are uh, uh, a lot of different things uh, that would be fun to do. I mean, uh, we haven't talked about this, but I was in the Army for three years in the mm-hmm. Army Finance Corps. I actually liked the Army. What did you do for, for the, in the Army? Actually, what I uh, did was we uh, it came, I did this right after business school. Uh, there was a colonel in the Army who was the commandant of the Army Finance Corps, and we were putting in a computerized pay and accounting system. And uh, this colonel uh, decided what we need are well-trained people to go into various posts to do it. And uh, so I was direct commissioned into the U.S. Army Finance Corps, did... uh, 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 did the uh, conversion of our pay and accounting system uh, mm-hmm. into a computerized one. And at the age of 22, I had more responsibility than anybody could possibly have had uh, uh, at that uh, In the time. private sector, for sure. Uh, certainly more than you'd ever get in the private uh, sector. And I loved my experience. In fact... Uh, uh, you know, while, as I told you, I grew up poor and I did want to get out and earn some uh, money. The Army's not a place to earn a lot of money. But I actually thought, gee, you know, this wouldn't have been a bad career. The other uh, possible career that I would have loved is I am a frustrated Shakespearean actor. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, in that uh, uh, I, uh, as a, with a lean and hungry look, I was a wonderful Cassius in a high school play. I would have loved to have done that, and I love reading Shakespeare. I love theater, uh, and actually a lot of the things, the so-called fiction things that I read uh, are uh, plays because uh, it would have been a wonderful career to uh, have had. Uh, and other than... Uh, uh, thinking that it meant uh, a life of being poor, I might have actually done that. With respect to other books that I think are very, very influential, I would point out uh, Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think that the insights of, you know, it's like the old Pogo line, we've met the enemy and it's us. Yes. Uh, this is, I think, the biggest problem uh, that we have in investing And uh, the insights uh, in that book, which is a wonderful summary of what we know about uh, behavioralism, uh, this is, uh, I think, uh, you ought to read my book, but boy, I would definitely read that book. It's a terrific book. Uh, I've read it, and I'm going to tell you most of our listeners, or, or at least many of our listeners, most of our listeners are familiar with the book, and I would bet many of them have uh, read Danny Kahneman's work. It's it's just seminal um, in the space, and so that's the the nonfiction, non-finance book. What what else do you uh, do you want to mention in terms of books? Well, I think those are you know as um, again we've uh, talked uh, about it, and it's very well written, uh, uh, Charlie. Uh, uh, Ellis's book sure. on winning uh, the losers game uh, is, uh, I think, very uh, important. And uh, you know, Jack Bogle has um, uh, written some uh, great books. In fact, I think uh, 
probably uh, uh, one of his uh, uh, best books uh, is uh, not directly about finance and is, uh, uh, says a lot about Jack Bogle. The book is called Enough, and it comes from uh, uh, this uh, uh, idea uh, that uh, uh, there was a discussion uh, with a, a, a writer and uh, uh, who had sold a lot of books, and uh, the fellow pointed out to a hedge fund guy who had made billions of dollars and uh, uh, said to the writer, uh, gee, you know, uh, you've uh, sold a lot of copies of books, but... Uh, uh, you have got a pittance relative to this uh, hedge fund guy. Uh, and the writer said, yeah, but I have got something uh, that that fellow will never have, and that's enough. Uh, and again, this is an idea that's uh, it's a, it's actually a wonderful book of Jack Bogle's uh, that I uh, recommend uh, warmly to people. A, a philosophical perspective on uh, what you need to be happy as opposed to never, never achieving that. So you've been watching the finance industry for a good long time. Um, what do you think are the most significant changes that we've witnessed? And we could probably talk for hours just about what's changed. But what is it that stands out as this is really something that's going to have a lasting effect uh, decades into the future? Well, for me, uh, because as you know, I uh, wrote There Ought to Be Index Funds uh, three years before the first index fund uh, uh, was put into effect. Uh, what I am so pleased about is that indexing finally has taken off, uh, that uh, money is flowing in. I think the ETF revolution uh, is a terrific thing. While there are some ETFs, and here I would agree with Jack Bogle, there are some ETFs that I think are terrible. I don't think people should buy <laughs> this ETF. Gives you three times the downside. I knew you were going to say that. Triple uh, of inverse. The, of the S&P. There are some of them that are terrible, but the plain vanilla <laughs> ones uh, allow people to basically buy the market at close to a zero cost. I think this is a revolution, and I think it's uh, uh, just extremely important. I think that one of the uh, big mistakes also that people make is that they don't save enough. I think that we do have uh, a crisis in this country that as we are aging, many people are woefully unprepared for retirement. One of the things that I wish we had done as a nation, when George Bush was hoping to privatize Social Security, what I would have preferred that he do is do a private add-on to the regular Social Security where you would have another percentage or so that right. would come out of your salary, and this would be yours that could have been invested in uh, index funds. Uh, I think if he had proposed that 
it would have passed right. as opposed to trying to redo the whole system. Right. I still would like to see something like that because I think as a nation, we are not saving enough uh, and uh, many people are unprepared for retirement. That That's Charlie Ellis's most recent book. That's the, Charlie Ellis's most recent book, exactly. The, the coming, coming retirement crisis. Let, before I forget, let me just make a note. Don't by triple leveraged inverse funds. Got it. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to take that as a newsflash from you. Uh, no. But but it, it's always good hearing it uh, straight from the horse's mouth. All right. So you mentioned indexing as the most, index funds as the most significant shift since you joined the industry. Looking forward, what do you think are the next changes that are going to take place? Well, uh, being uh, in the uh, vanguard of automated uh, uh, investment advisors and trying to uh, build that business up, uh, I do believe that um, uh, this will become increasingly important and we will be able to automate investment advice because by doing so, we can charge less. And as I've said many times, I'm very modest about what I know or don't know about finance, but what I'm just absolutely sure about is if we can provide services at lower cost, uh, that's a win-win for people. Uh, because the lower the price I pay to the purveyor of any service, the more there's going to be for me. Especially if you're going to compound that over decades. You betcha, because costs, uh, again, uh, my friend Jack Bogle would call it, uh, just as uh, Einstein said at one point that uh, compound interest is one of the greatest forces in the world. Well, the costs compound too, which Jack calls the tyranny of the compounding of costs. So, we're down to our last two questions. These are two of my favorite questions. I ask all of my guests. If somebody who is just graduating college, um, as uh, a millennial, as they're uh, referred to these days, came to you and asked, said they're interested in a career in finance, what sort of advice would you give them? I would tell them that while finance uh, sometimes has a uh, a very bad name. I mean, after all, we've had uh, 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 people, uh, and they're really very, very uh, similar. Bernie, in this uh, uh, campaign, uh, Bernie Sanders says uh, all the problems in the world are because of Wall Street and, uh, uh, and break up the banks and everything's going to be fine. And Donald Trump has not been very different from Bernie Sanders. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, in uh, saying that uh, Wall Street is all bad. Don't believe it. Uh, it's a uh, fascinating career. Uh, and uh, 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 finance uh, uh, has, in fact, uh, been extremely important in improving welfare. And we were talking about books. There's a book by Getzman, uh, uh, which has just come out, about how uh, money has, in fact, uh, been 
absolutely essential in improving people's standard of living. What What's the name of the Getzman book? Uh, it's uh, Money, and uh, uh, you might uh, be able to uh, find it. I don't think I've got the other part of it exact. Money changes everything. Money changes everything. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. I give credit to Google for that. Good. Money Changes Everything, How Finance Made Civilization Possible by William Getzman. Getzman. Oh, and I recognize this cover, uh, the pyramid a... uh, on the on the cover of the book. Uh, yep. Um, and our final question, God, I have like a million other things to talk to you about, but I can't keep you here forever. What is it that you know about, and, and I know the answer to this, but I have to ask it, what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you started your career? Well, I didn't know uh, about uh, indexing. Uh, in fact, when I uh, worked at uh, Smith Barney, I spent a lot of time with the research people. I, uh, 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 I had drunk that Kool-Aid that, at sure. that point. Uh, I uh, uh, believed it could be done. And... Uh, Actually, one of the things that uh, uh, I just found absolutely fascinating was it wasn't necessarily because people weren't good at it. Uh, my mentors at that time were people by the name of Bill Grant, mm -hmm. uh, Nelson Shannon. Uh, uh, they were very good at it, but I began to realize, which I didn't know at the beginning— was the paradox that the more the talented people are in this game, the less they can profit from it. Because the more the talented people work and invest and make market prices change, the better the market becomes and the better off people are just accepting the tableau of market prices that are out there and buying an index fund. And it was that kind of experience that finally led to this view that indexing was the way to go. Professor Malkiel, thank you so much for being so generous uh, with your time. This has been an utterly fascinating uh, tour de force conversation about the the everything you've learned and, and the proper way for most people uh, to invest. I hope all the listeners have, have enjoyed this conversation. If you have, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. You can see the other 92 or so such conversations uh, we've had. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, our booker for, for scheduling these uh, conversations and staying on top of all of our very ga various guests. My engineer is Charlie Vollmer, and my head of research is Mike Batnick. Uh, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC.